Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. My name is still Andy Davis and this is officially episode one of season three. We've got some great guests coming up on the show, but firstly, a quick apology for the sudden end to season two a few weeks ago, if you were wondering. To cut a long story short, I got all the COVID all over me all over again. I had all the same symptoms that I had back in January, but oddly, I tested negative twice, so who knows what was going on, certainly not me. What I do know is that it wiped me out in exactly the same way, and I felt like I'd licked the floor of a night bus. I really don't recommend it. But I'm back on the mend, hopefully for the last time, and the enforced break gives us the perfect opportunity to start a whole new season. Hooray! So yes, this is episode one of season three, and we're going to start with a look at the state of the housing market, as of course, the health of the KBB sector is inextricably linked to what's happening in mortgages and property. We've got some great expert insights from Ian Swatton at mortgage comparison site Dashley, and it's really fascinating stuff, so stick around for that. Then I'm talking to a couple of top retailers, Nathan Damerell at KF Kitchens in Plymouth and Steve Root at Roots Kitchens Bedrooms Bathrooms in Faversham. And we're looking into how retailers are making their own videos to promote their expertise, skills and services, and then sticking them up on YouTube for the world to see. It's a fascinating way of demonstrating personality and of marketing themselves to a wider audience. And it is a natural progression from the digital journey so many retailers have started on as we've gone through all these lockdowns. Really, really interesting. But first, the Tailless Media Shameless Plug is back, and for the start of Season 3, it's a very special gold-plated VIP plug, as I have down the line our very own editor of Kitchens, Bedrooms and Bathrooms magazine, Lindsay Blair, to tell us all about a fantastic new initiative she's been working on. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, I like the sound of a gold-plated plug. Very big in the 80s, maybe not so much these days. It would be a kind of a matte stainless steel plug right now. But hello, how is Milton Keynes today? Is it as sunny as it is here? It is lovely and sunny here this morning. Cold though, isn't it? I haven't been outside yet today, which is probably testament to lockdown life, isn't it? <laughs> well, I have, you see, I have to have school run. It's your gauge of the weather. Right, so let's dip in here. The online sister website for kitchens, bedrooms and bathrooms is called These Three Rooms and you've got a brand new section on there. So over to you to tell us all about it. We have. So um, we have recently launched Project Planner, which is a section within these three rooms.com, which, as you quite rightly say, is our consumer-facing website, sister brand to KBB Magazine. We launched these three rooms over a year ago now, and the Project Planner section is a natural progression of what the website and what us as a brand are all about. So really, it's our mission to offer consumers that real expertise when it comes to planning and executing their project whether that's a kitchen bedroom or bathroom project planner is really that in a nutshell so it's the real nuts and bolts of what goes into planning that space what to expect from sort of design consultations how to set a budget you know how to even find a kitchen or bathroom designer so it's really the the niches of planning a project so we get lots of queries and design dilemmas from readers um, all the time about what they should do uh, when it comes to planning their project. So Project Planner section aims to answer all of those. And one of my favourite parts of it is a new free Project Planner kit, which people can go on, they can download, and it's just a bundle of assets that they can use to track and plan and keep notes about everything that they're working on. 
So there's a handy little checklist in there. There's a budget tracker. There's a little form thing that they can fill in to keep the details of the designers and the trades they're working with. So they've got everything to hand. And really, it's for me, it's about instilling the consumer with the confidence to do their project and to forge ahead and make the decisions. Because let's face it, there are so many decisions that go into planning a project. So all of the things that we've learned from our side, we've put out into this pack, out into this section of the website to really help homeowners create their dream home, really. Yeah, and you and your team have done a great job on this. It's a fantastic resource for consumers directly, but I think it's also a really good place for retailers and designers to send their clients when they're right at the start of their journey, when they're first having the first conversation, as it really guides them through what to expect in the process. It doesn't make decisions for them. It doesn't choose products for them. It just tells them what to expect in the process, and that's what's so clever about it, I think. Funny enough, you said we launched these two rooms about a year ago. It's almost as if we planned it, really, except we didn't. It's gone absolutely through the roof throughout the whole lockdown period, as you would expect, because so many people are concentrating on their homes. And this is just another sort of add-on to what that site can bring people. Now, speaking of retailers, just while you're here, we should also mention the Close to Home initiative, which continues to go from strength to strength as well. And retailers can get themselves involved in that for free. So remind us what Close to Home is and how people can get their name on the list. Yeah, so um, Close to Home, we launched last summer. So when uh, retail was reopening again after the first or second lockdown, I can't quite remember which one, to great response. So basically, it is our initiative to encourage consumers to look close to home when they're, again, planning a project and they're searching for showrooms to visit or designers to work with. We really want to highlight the local independent retailers up and down the country and get readers of magazine visitors to the website to look around their corner there might be a great local independent on their local high street so really thinking about you know thinking outside the box really of where you might go to get those first initial consultations lived in our sort of bubbles for the last year and we haven't really ventured far so close to home is sort of an obvious campaign to say to consumers look you don't actually have to go that far you don't have to drive miles to find your perfect retailer they literally could be two minutes walk from your house so we've had great response and it's really built into our editorial campaign across print and digital over the last almost a year now so we are shining the light on local independents and putting them in the magazine getting more content from them working with them on case studies and imagery which is great opportunity for those independent brands out there so I'm really keen to work with anyone who maybe hasn't had that sort of coverage before so yeah I mean it's a great all-rounder really and I'm really proud of that campaign and I think it's it's had some great responses and it's yeah it's a good thing for both me and the retailers personally. Yeah, and it was a big thing for us. We'd never really, even though KBB Magazine's been around a very long time, we'd never really pushed people in one direction when it came to actually where to get their kitchen or bathroom from. We've always been quite pragmatic about that. But actually, what came very clear in the middle of the lockdown was we're a magazine that's all about expertise. And actually, if you want to get your dream kitchen, bedroom or bathroom, you need to go to experts. And those experts, as you say, are close to home. It's almost as if we designed the title that way. It is thesedrooms.com forward slash close to home. But Lindsay, we've run out of time here for our gold-plated Taylor's Media plug. But thank you very much. Great. Thanks very much. Speak to you later.
Now, as we all know, the fortunes of the home improvement market are intrinsically linked to the fortunes of the housing market. So let's get an expert view on that with Ian Swatton, who is a mortgage expert from mortgage switching platform Dashley. Hello, Ian. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, where in the world are you? I'm actually in Beckenham in Kent, so southeast London. Well, you know what? So am I. We could have done this in person, Ian. I'm in Park Langley. Well, there you go. You see, right, we've got all the way around the world with the miracle of the internet to talk to each other about 20 minutes away from each other. How about that? Indeed. We could have met outside in the pub. And that's spooky. There you go. Park Langley's very nice, though. I must point that out. I- I'm near Penge. Your Park Langley is a quite a posh bit of, of Beckham, <laughs> I must say. Thank you. Let's establish your credentials here first, I think. Tell us a little bit about Dashley and what it does. So Dashley is a always-on platform that is searching the market for the next better deal for mortgage holders. So if a customer has a mortgage, it's it's looking to see when the next better deal is for that customer and advising them, notifying them, and letting the customer take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, so that officially makes you an expert, Ian. So let's start with the big obvious question. You're right here and now. What is the current health of the housing market as you see it? What's the headlines? So the market is buoyant and has been for for some time. Absolutely, there was a blip at the start of the pandemic as um, everything went into lockdown back a year or so now from when that started. But um, as soon as those restrictions were lifted, the market raced back to to where it was. And if anything, has, has defied most people's expectations. So the market, with all the added incentives that are out there to try and, and maintain that level of buoyancy in the market are all doing the trick. And the market is very hot. It's extremely hot. What's the main influences on that, do you think? What's, what's driving it? Because, you know, we are still in lockdowns. There's still roadmaps going on. We're still in a very difficult situation here. So what is driving that market so much? So the fundamentals were always there pre-pandemic. A lot of demand for property, a lack of supply, a uh, lack of supply of new property coming onto the market, be it new property, new stuff being built or existing uh, sort of secondhand property. That demand has been there for a long time. But what the government have added since in terms of trying to keep things going is the stamp duty freezing. So the incentive that you're not be paying stamp duty, which, which was extended from end of March now to the end of June. The easing of lending, not just with the introduction of the 95% lending, which is just really coming in the last sort of few weeks or so, but also lenders starting to be a little bit, little bit less cautious in terms of how much they'll lend and, and, the, and the criteria that sits behind that. So there's lots of stimulus going on to just keep things going. And that's definitely playing a part. So all those things coming together are definitely playing a part in keeping the market buoyant. As you say, that's lots of planned stimulus. But do you think it's something as small as people have just got time to go and look at houses? Well, that's a really good point, actually, and a really good question. So, so actually being able to view properties become, in some respects, a lot easier in terms in, in terms that the estate agents switch their attention to do more sort of video tours of properties because they recognise pretty early doors that if people are in lockdown, you, you can't leave your home, you can't go around anybody else's home unless a really uh, cautious approach is taken. So lots of estate agents started doing video tours and therefore prospective purchasers could actually go and view a property sat in their front room and that would also that would sort of stimulate their interest and also the reality that people are in a lockdown working from home in an environment that uh, probably in their homes for a lot longer than they would have done previously where they were maybe commuting to work whatever and realizing actually they weren't they wanted something better and they wanted to maybe have that extra bedroom because they're working from home maybe needed the garden maybe just wanted to be out out of the city center 
And I think all these things coming together has created that stimulus where people are saying, I want to move, I want to move on. Yes, I'm stuck at home, I can't do much, but I can see these properties online. I can see these, do these video tours and actually really get a, an interest. And I'm sure there are house sales which have been created through that video tour initially, whereas that probably wouldn't have happened if the innovative uh, estate agent had decided actually they're going to switch their attention away from physical viewing to, to online viewing. Yeah, it's a strange paradox, isn't it? This idea that we've been all locked down and stuck at home, but it's made us focus on home so much more. As you said, there's been lots of news about the 5% deposit scheme. That's clearly about incentivising first-time buyers. But of course, I think that, as you say, that stamp duty holiday ends on the 30th of June. What do you think is going to happen on the 1st of July? That's That's a really good question. And there's lots of people with different opinions in terms of what will happen. I think there will inevitably be a pause. Uh, So once people will be working to a deadline and and so on the 1st of July, there'll be some people that uh, that, the the volumes will probably dip down because people worked that deadline at the end of June. But the fundamentals are still there in terms of the market. There is a demand, there's a big demand for property. And my um, sort of anecdotal evidence is that people have probably factored in that, yes, I can save on, on the stamp duty, but my reasons for moving is more than just the stamp duty saving. I, I do want to move. I do want a bigger property. I do want a garden. I do want to be out, out of the city in the countryside. And although the stamp duties are saving and the customer, uh, the client is able to do something with that money, it isn't necessarily the only driver. So inevitably there will be a slowdown, but how long that slowdown will be, my opinion on that is not very long, maybe a couple of months or so, and then things will start to pick up again. Right, okay. So so the demand will remain there. There just might be a bit of a blip as people yes. switch from one to the other. Now, what's interesting about Dashley is because you're obviously a mortgage company, you're not a, you know, an estate agent or whatever. So there's two sides to this market, aren't there? There's the buying, selling and moving side of it all but then there's also the remortgage side of it the you know the releasing equity to pay for stuff so what's that market looking like in comparison so the remortgage market if we go back to the sort of pandemic start of the pandemic the remortgage market actually kept kept things moving for for lots of brokers because although inevitably there was a halt in people being able to purchase actually people needed to remortgage um, they were still able to do so so remortgages have, haven't really stopped haven't really had a ha- haven't had a pause um, there was a some interesting uh, reports actually come out uh, recently there was a report out by Zoopla yesterday for example where customers uh, or, or property holders were I think something like 45 percent of property vault holders thought their property was less than it actually was worth so if you couple that that um, people think their properties are worth less and they've got a mortgage on there when it comes to remortgage, when they actually get to realise that their properties are worth more, there is the sort of the, the temptation then to, to take out some additional finance to pay for home improvements and that sort of thing. So what you've seen with remortgages is that people do switch from one lender to another or from one rate to another rate when their deal expires. But there's also an appetite to potentially borrow more money to put to good use for things like home improvements and things like that. So the, the remortgage market has remained strong and people have started to look at are there opportunities for them to, to improve things as, as things move forward. I, mean, I don't expect you to be an expert in kitchens and bathrooms, although you might be, for all I know. People in Beckenham are very knowledgeable. But I'm wondering how much, you, how much, what factor or what effect that the drive for home improvement is having on that remortgage market, given the fact that we're in a pandemic, everyone's locked down. I mean, there's, you know, the, there's been so much anecdotal evidence and actual, actual statistical evidence that people are investing in their homes. Have, have you seen that in terms of people getting the financing? 
Yes, definitely. There is definitely a, a drive for people to invest in their homes to to create maybe another room or to to improve their bathroom, kitchen, or or whatever it is. But to definitely give themselves more space to make their homes a more pleasant environment. Part of that will be because they've locked in their home much longer than they would have done been previously, um, and that sort of makes perfect sense. The other side is the is the inevitable supply issue that if you're trying to move up the property ladder and there isn't property for you to move into, then you have a choice. If you need to have that extra room because you've got an expanding family or whatever, then the only choice you have is you either move or you extend and expand what you currently have. So people have taken the opportunity to, to refinance um, the equity in their homes to, to pay for those improvements. So there's, there's drivers there. So I want to change my home because I'm in it more than I would have done previously, make it a better environment. Alternatively, I can't find anything bigger or anything more suitable to move to because the supply isn't there and therefore I'll improve what I'm actually living in. And with interest rates at such low levels, they are, it's a very attractive proposition to do that. Yeah, will that continue? Given the, the value of property seems to increasingly go up and up and up and never stop, the amount of equity people have obviously goes up in the same way. Can you see that drive to use that equity to improve continuing? $64,000 question, that one. So um, whilst the supply issue remains, and that really is down to house builders building property for people to be moving into, the rationale for people wanting to extend their properties doesn't go away. So for example, if you need a bigger property, but there isn't the supply there, then inevitably, the only choice you have is to expand your your property. And if you need to finance on that, then the the only way you can do that is to to remortgage your, your property to do that. So um, I don't see those fundamentals changing anytime soon. The supply issue isn't just going to go away tomorrow. We have a very large shortage of property throughout the whole realms of you know the, the starter properties all the way through to your sort of four or five bedroom property. That there is just a lack of supply all the way through, and the demand is so great that that supply issue is going to take years to resolve. In in, in my view, so I can't see that that will change anytime soon. I still think people will look to extend what they have. They will look to improve what they currently have, especially as rates are likely to remain at the lower levels that they are currently. So continuing on from that then, what's your view on new builds? The new build market is a big part of solving that that housing issue. What's your view on, on the rollout of new builds continuing? That will continue and it will continue at a pace as, as builders come back into uh, the market as, as the new help to buy scheme that's out there really starts to kick in and, and as the government is focusing on uh, making it easier for people to build and lots of developments in lots of different places that will that will continue the the type of property they build depending on the market that they wish to to sell to is obviously a factor so there will be a real drive to build property for first-time buyers because it, it's very clear that to be a first-time buyer first step on the property ladder is incredibly difficult and that is probably where the problem starts. If you don't have property there, you can't start the uh, the whole chain process. So there will be a huge focus at that sort of first time buyer end of the market. But equally for builders, they're not all in that that space. Some of them are in the more sort of executive homes. If you go to the other end of the scale, and they they will continue too. So I think the builders they know they've got products that people are going to buy. The focus, I believe, will be at the, the, the first time buyer to push that supply all the way through. So I, I actually see there's a real incentive for builders to build as long as government and as long as the local authorities make it easy for the builders to actually get them started get some sort of space in the ground to get the bricks built 
Okay, so look, let's jump forward a few years here, Ian. The, the pandemic is hopefully far behind us. What's your prediction for the next few years of, of that housing mortgage market? If we jump forward three or four or five years, what's it going to be like? So again, a really good question and, and, and um, lots of factors that may come into play, but things that we don't know. But there are some headwinds. There are things that we do know are going to cause issues, but to what extent those issues will be, uh, we really don't know. As we sort of head out of or ease out of lockdown, and the inevitable unemployment that will probably come from that, people coming off furlough and haven't got, got jobs. It's how quickly the economy bounces back and whether it's a V-shaped recovery, as, as I think everybody helps, that what's come down goes straight back up again. And probably that will have limited impact on the market going forward. But if it's not a, uh, a V-shape, but more of a U-shape, and we end up with high unemployment rates, that, again, is going to probably push uh, recovery back. And so the stimuluses that are there will probably need to remain to keep keep the market going. There's also the issues around affordability. Nationwide this week actually have eased their lending criteria. They've they've moved their uh, loan to income ratios to make it more generous uh, in terms of how much they'll lend. And there's probably going to need to be a a real push by lenders to do that, to become more generous, to allow people to borrow more money, especially as interest rates look like they're likely to remain at such low levels. So it's very affordable to borrow, but you've got to allow people to borrow the right right amounts of money. So if we see... Um, the 95% lending really take foothold and people really, really been able to take advantage of that. If we see uh, lenders be more generous in terms of how much they're prepared to lend people, that really will help first-time buyers to get onto the market. And if you combine that with an increase in supply at the end of the market, I do think that, there's, that the next four or five years will be a very buoyant buoyant marketplace for, for people moving into the, into the housing ladder. But I also still believe that as interest rates are likely to remain low, people will take advantage of that and, and, and look to refinance and, and use equity in their property to improve their properties or improve their the, the environments that they're living in. But I also think there'll be a real opportunity that if the landscape in city centres change, so for example, we end up with empty offices or we end up with empty um, shops and that sort of thing, that there'll be a look to see, can those properties be reutilised for residential property? And, and so Again, these are things that aren't necessarily happening now, but I think we'll probably uh, we'll start to see a real shift to maybe more where some people look to move out of city centres, other people look to move back in again, where they repurpose um, shops and offices into, into sort of residential property. And that may be one way of easing the supply for first-time buyers. My worry here is, Ian, and I'm being a bit devil's advocate here, but when we make things e- things easier for people to borrow and they can start borrowing 95% and, you know, I can remember before a credit crunch, massive economic upheaval, there was like 110% mortgages. What's the danger here that we get back to a stage where people are just borrowing stuff they can't afford? I, that, that is a danger and it's a danger that I think the lenders are acutely aware of and um, and have been for uh, quite some time. Their, their cautious approach has, has, has probably been the right approach because it means that people don't, don't overstretch themselves. There's lots of innovative products that are out there in terms of people fixing their rates for, for longer periods of time. So you'll fix your mortgage for, say, five years, 10 years. There's even a, a whole of fixed lifetime mortgage out there, um, which gives people stability. If people know what their payments are, then they're more likely to be able to afford them. It's, it's the fluctuation in, in, in payments. So there's a real um, drive in um, sort of pushing for longer term fixed rates and that sort of thing. And that does give that reassurance that, well, if you're 
able to borrow it, assuming nothing happens in terms of your employment and, and that sort of status, that you should be able to maintain those payments. The concern would be if there was a sudden increase in interest rates at some point in the future and made those payments unaffordable. But I guess as, as long as people have, have been cautious at the outset and maybe look to fix their rate for as long as possible for their particular circumstances, then I think things should probably be okay. But the, But you're absolutely right. There is always the caution that there is the inevitable bubble that will burst and and, and that will catch people out going forward yeah because the last thing we want is to come out of a pandemic straight into a subprime mortgage replay that would just finish us all off i think well look, this is really fascinating ian and and i'm going to ask you the, the the big question now which is kitchen and bathroom related right yeah do new kitchens and bathrooms add value to a property or do they just make that property more sellable that's a really good question, actually. Do they add value? I have to say that I think a well-specked out kitchen and a well-specked out bathroom will add value to a property. They definitely make them more sellable, absolutely make them more sellable. If you go into any property and look at it and you've got a nice kitchen, and you've got a nice bathroom, um, you know you haven't necessarily got to spend any money on that. If it's your taste, you haven't got to spend any money, whatever that kitchen or bathroom costs. But equally, it will make a property more appealing. And if it makes something more appealing, there's more demand and that demand will push up the price. So I do think it does have an impact on price, but definitely makes it more sellable. Is the right answer. Well done. (laughs) That's what every kitchen and bathroom person wants to hear. Look, Ian, thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate you uh, sharing this insight with us. Don't worry, you've made all these predictions, so we will check in with you again (laughs) to see whether or not you're right. Okay. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you now. Thank you. Now, the last year of lockdowns has, uh, of course, led many retailers on a vastly accelerated move into using digital media to communicate with clients. How many of you had heard of Zoom before last year in a context other than disappointingly tasteless ice lollies? But many have also begun to realise that they can use video to directly demonstrate their expertise to potential customers via YouTube. So, hopefully, down the line, we have a couple of retailers doing just that. First up, we have Nathan Damarell from KF Kitchens in Plymouth. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Andrew. And we have Steve Root from Roots in Faversham in Kent. Hello, Steve. Hello, Andrew. And hello, Nathan. Hello. Hello. Right. So I think what we'll start is just do a bit of background here. Uh, let's start with you, Nathan. Give us the 30 second story of KF Kitchens. Uh, we are a family run business, 13 years old now. Um, we've done a, a major showroom refit in the last uh, six months since um, the last lockdown from November. Um, hopefully to open again in January, but then obviously we got shut down again. Um, reopened two weeks ago with a new Nolta showroom to sit alongside our more traditional offering. Um, we've just started doing cooking demonstrations and uh, alike online, ready to post on YouTube. Now, Steve, what's the history of Roots? So I started Roots back in 1998. We're a family-run, small specialist, independent retailer doing kitchens, bedrooms and bathrooms and fully managed projects. So we do about 40 rooms a year, just very nice rooms, very nice customers, no stress, well-organised, well-planned. And we found ourselves our own little niche in East Kent. Before we get on to making the videos... I think it would be remiss of me to have two very experienced retailers on here without asking for for a brief assessment of the market right now. So, Nathan, let's go over to you. How's business for you here and now? Very good, as we would expect. I think we've always been, uh, similar to Steve, we've been very always very consistent. We kind of have generally done 100 kitchens a year, a bad year being 95 and a good year being 105. And 
at the moment, demand is incredibly high. We're seeing our first week back between myself and my business partner. We saw we had about 40 appointments for people to visit us in the showroom. So that's incredibly high. It's matched by week two. And we've obviously got a lot of those people now to, to work through the process. I think the one thing that we all as an industry have to probably realize that 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 demand has been pent up for the last four months and you can be incredibly busy now. That doesn't mean that the marketplace is actually busy. And I think the true test is probably going to come July, August, September time when we actually see the dynamics of what the industry and, and, and how busy it's all going to be at that point will determine where it's going to, where, it, where it's ultimately going to go in the next couple of years. Right, Steve, are you, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, we're really busy. I feel quite privileged to be in our type of business, having gone through this pandemic. Obviously, our turnover has been affected, but considering, I mean, imagine if I'd have started a, a pub or something 23 years ago, that would have been a terrible time to be in business. So I feel really lucky. We're seeing a lot of customers coming in. Customers have been waiting for us to reopen, to come in and make final decisions. So this last two weeks has been really busy. We feel lucky. We feel very lucky. I and mean, we're also very established in the, in the type of thing we do. We're not looking to set huge turnover records or anything. So we find that there's always enough work for us doing really nice things in our area yes as i've said on here several times i think it'll take a year or more but i think after a while this industry will really appreciate just how lucky and sheltered it's been through this whole mess so look let's get let's go on to uh youtube and videos uh, as i say more and more retailers are turning to it as a way to show potential clients who they are as much as to demonstrate uh, abilities and knowledge so i'm going to start with you nathan because you're literally just sort of setting off down this road. Can you give us an idea of where you're up to and, in particular, what's made you give it a go? Almost. It was driven by driven for us by COVID. Uh, we've always seen that cooking demonstrations, our, our cooking demonstrations through historically through NEF, uh, as we've brought that on, we've introduced Siemens and Mila into our, into our uh, product offering. Uh, we've always seen uh, the marketing and, and how you develop the, the cooking demonstrations has always been about uh, reaffirming to the customers that they've made the right choice. So we would have at least one, maybe two NEF cooking demonstrations per year. We'd invite people in by, by appointment. We'd normally do two sittings. We'd see maybe 40 to 50 existing clients come in to, to do a three-hour sitting in the morning and another 40 to 50 in the afternoon. And it was always a big part of what we did for our clients was that ultimately the big brands generally want those those demonstrations to be about upselling and about selling their product. And I always saw it as being a, a, a way of helping those clients use their pro, their appliances correctly, use them to their optimum and almost a few years ago, I talked to somebody in marketing and they, they talk about marketing and reaffirming the customer's decisions. So it's as a client, it's great to know in the background, you're constantly being marketed to be told that the choices you made, i.e. you bought a KF kitchen and you bought these appliances was the right choice. COVID has meant that obviously we're not able to see 100 clients in here on a Christmas cooking demonstration. And so BSH approached me at a similar time to our marketing people uh, were approaching us to talk about uh, videoing these uh, demonstrations and videoing um, the BSH home economist. She could come down. They're going to be 10 to 15 minutes of the home economist cooking. We did it quite professionally last week. Uh, we got our market 
marketing people down. They videoed it. They recorded it all day. So it took us from kind of nine thirty in the morning till six o'clock, and that will ultimately lead to about five or six recordings. Uh, originally, we were going to put them onto a website, but we're now thinking that we might create it and, and put it out on YouTube because it seems to be a really good forum for customers then to go and find how to cook with Steam, how to cook with that NEF appliance. But then I'm planning on taking that further on in using that forum as an ability to kind of almost the things that we say to every single client Every single client can find that on YouTube. So my demonstration of why they should buy a Neff oven or a Siemens oven or a Miele or any of these or any of these products, if we post those on YouTube, if I put them on YouTube, my customers can sit sit at home, take that information, and almost engage with us at, at any time that they prefer, as opposed to making an appointment to come into the showroom. So it's almost somewhere we're at, we're, we're, we're novices at it. I want to see how it pans out and how it works. It would be really interesting. But for very little input, I think potentially it could be really useful in terms of time efficiency and useful in terms of brand building. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? A way of putting the message out there in a very personal way rather than just a, a straight advertising way. So look, Steve, you've been doing this for a while. You're, the, you're very much the star of your videos. So give us an overview of the kind of thing that you've been doing so far. The videos come about because I love learning about how things work and then I love sharing that knowledge. So, I mean, outside of work, I, I teach air cadets as a, as a navigation instructor for various other topics. And also being a bit of a geek, I've got the background that I knew how to make videos. So I've I've just been making them between other jobs, really, which is also why it's been busy this last few months with me doing videos, because uh, the show has been closed. So I've had more time. The ones that seem to be most useful are the ones that answer people's particular questions. So at the moment, that's the one about whether the uh, the downdraft or the venting hobs, the hobs with extractors built in, whether they actually work. So I, I got carried away. I made a humidistat and a Raspberry Pi, and I, I made my computer do a real-time graph just to see whether the, all of the air was being drawn into that hob. And that seems to have taken on a life of its own at the moment. I think it's 150,000 views. The other one that's been really popular. So Nathan, you sell NEF, don't you? So you know NEF hide and slide doors. You know when you take them off and you put them back on and sometimes it goes perfectly and sometimes the bottom rail falls off. Um, I only discovered that because a customer called me up a few years ago and said they couldn't get their door back on. And I thought, oh, this is easy. So I thought 10 minutes, I'll have a go at the one in the shop and then I'll talk you through it. And then 40 minutes later, I finally figured out what I was doing wrong. So then I just made a video in the afternoon and that's been really popular as well. And it's really nice that sort of like just get these random phone calls during the week or messages on email saying, thanks, that helped solve our Christmas dinner or and things like that so so i'm doing it really because i enjoy it more than anything else i mean what's interesting is i mean nathan's obviously going down the uh the the food and cooking route which is sort of one avenue to take you're definitely going down the addressing direct questions that customers and consumers might ask so for example how do you take a door off a slide and hide but it's also how effective extractors are adjusting the doors on your cabinets are these sort of common questions that you're getting all the time they are. And also they're things I know how to answer. And it's just convenient for me then to make a video of it, although they can take a, a bit of time. Um, as Nathan was just saying, spending all day filming uh, doesn't surprise me at all. I think I've worked out my average time of to create a video. I spend about three hours of work to get one minute of useful video, which includes the working out of a script and then the editing at the end of it as well. And then there's a speaking camera and, you know, doing that three times to get it right. They're time consuming to create, but I enjoy them. And then from a business point of view, I mean, we do see that when customers come in, 
the, the, me having the videos has added a bit of credibility to us and about the, the level of detail we go to in working on people's rooms. It makes us more approachable and it makes us, I think, stand out a little bit more for the customers that go find things on YouTube. I mean, obviously, the majority of people that watch those videos are all over the world and no, never going to be customers of ours. But it's good to help people. So I quite like that. It's profile, isn't it? It's a case if you just never know. And if someone is thinking of coming down to see you and does a bit of a, a Google search or whatever, those videos are going to come up. That's right. Yeah. So it, it definitely helps. Um, I think I'd, if, I, if I was being a, a ruthless business person in this, then I'd probably struggle to justify it at our scale being such a small business. Um, I think a lot of the larger companies could probably do it more effectively than manufacturers maybe. But I also think that for us, I mean, I think what works with our videos and, and our style of business is that people are talking to the Root family and they're talking to Steve Root and my brother, David Root. So that our, our whole marketing niche is the fact that people get to deal with people who care and who are experts. So let's look at this way. Nathan's just starting out. You've been doing this a while. What are the lessons you think you've learned over that time, over the last few years uh, in how to make them really effective? That's a really good question. I'm not really sure. I don't I don't really consider myself an expert on it. I'm just doing stuff and it seems to be working for a lot of people and it works for me. I, I think from, from my perspective, jumping in there, Steve, I, th- I think there's two threads that you can follow with these videos. There's almost, and, and kind of, I think you're probably doing a bit of both of them without probably trying to. There's an element that you're building a brand and building your fame. I think the other way of using these these channels is to answer directly, and I think you're doing that with the sliding high door, is to, is to answer directly questions that people work, that all your customers may ask. And if you take that and say, realistically, every single one of my customers wants explaining to them why they should buy a Neff oven, why they should buy a Siemens oven, what is the difference between a Neff oven and a Siemens oven? In my mind, if I see every one of my clients over a year, which would be 100 customers, and I spend 15 minutes with each of them explaining to them what are the benefits of these products, and they can actually find that content on YouTube, it will ultimately allow me to reach out to every single one of my customers without seeing them individually. I've already done a load of that stuff. I've designed the kitchen. When it gets down to that detail, we can ultimately point them in the direction of links that they can find to get the answers of the questions that in historically they would just walk in the showroom and ask the question of. That's a really good idea. And I guess that also means that if you're doing it as a very personal and direct one to answer your customers' particular questions, you probably also don't need to spend so long messing around with the, the technical side. So uh, I'm spending quite a lot of time struggling with getting lighting just right at the moment and, and other things. Whereas if I could just pick up the phone and just like video myself and just talk to the one or two people about the one or two things, that would probably remove a lot of the time spent as well. Absolutely. And I, and I got that back from kind of if somebody has a if somebody has a tap that is dripping and they don't know how to do it, what do you do? You say, go on to YouTube, put in Blanco tap dripping and there, there will be an inordinate amount of content on there to explain how to do it. If you take that on and you start to consider that if we are saying the same things to every customer at the point of them walking into the showroom. So essentially you are doing, you are presenting your showroom every single time to every single customer, essentially the same way every time they can do a lot of that research before they even get to you. So there's a remote part to it that you don't need to be opening your showroom from nine o'clock till five o'clock. You can almost give people the content of it before they even arrive, which allows you to filter out the people who might not necessarily be for you. 
what I think is interesting about this is the idea of personality and expertise, right? So what do what do independent retailers have over the big national chains? It's this it's this personal service. It's you when you walk into that showroom, you know you're going to talk to someone who really understands and knows what they're talking about. And these kind of videos, while they might not be directly related to you or your problem, they do get across this subliminal message of we really know what we're talking about here. You can come in and talk to us directly. We are experts. And I think that's what's fascinating about it for me. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the, the videos were, I mean, this whole business has always been very much based around me doing things and me being seen and customers talking to Steve Root, you know, no title on the business card because my name's in the business. That is a really key point of us selling. So I think you're right, both of you, that if, yeah, with the YouTube videos, they, they probably help an awful lot more on, on that. And, and I'd say potentially for every uh, every small independent retailer, if it's if it's a way that you can stand in front of a customer and, and build that connection and, and build that credibility, then it's it's got to work. Like all things, though, I guess it's expensive on time and it's trying to find that balance, isn't it, between how much time you spend creating video or learning how to use Instagram, if you're me, or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of opportunities, aren't there? Well, look, uh, chaps, we could talk about this all day. It's so interesting. But I thought, seeing as I have the two of you here, and this is episode one of season three, I thought I'd conclude this with a bit of a quiz. Okay. Right? Because there's two of you, you're both now officially contestants in my new game show, The Weaker Sync. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with sinks. I just thought that was quite a clever name. Yep. So I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask each of you three questions related to YouTube. Okay. Whoa. Okay. And whoever gets the most right will receive the amazing prize of hearty congratulations from me. Oh, that's worth that prize. Puts the pressure on there. There it is. So Nathan, you're first. Are you ready? Thank you, yes. How many hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute? Is it two hundred and fifty hours or five hundred hours? 500. It is 500. First blood to Nathan. Okay, Steve, it's your turn. Hey. Google bought YouTube in 2006, but for how much was it? Was it $1.65 billion or $2.65 billion? Uh, 1.65. It was 1.65. It's even Stevens. This is quite exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Much Much more exciting than I was anticipating. Okay. Nathan, back to you. What percentage of users will stop watching a video if it hasn't hooked them in the first 10 seconds? Is it 20% or 30%? I'd go 30. Oh, it's 20%, Nathan. Oh, no. I'd have said 30 as well. (laughs) Here's your chance to take the lead. Here we go. Now, the first ever video on YouTube was someone looking at elephants at San Diego Zoo. But what year was it posted? 2004 or 2005? 2004. 2004 is not the right answer. Ah. Oh, we're going, we're going into the final question even. It was 2005, and it has now been viewed over 162 million times. It's literally a man looking at elephants. Wow. Okay, here we go. Here's the decider then. Nathan, it's your final question. Which music video has the most views ever? Is it Despacito by Louis Fonzi, or is it Baby Shark by Pink Fong? Baby Shark. It is Baby Shark, with over eight and a half billion views. Wow. Absolutely terrifying. My kids are on one billion of those. <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, here it is, a decider. Okay, if you get this, it's a draw. Yep. If you don't get it, Nathan's the winner. Here we go. Outside of music videos and film trailers, Joe Wicks had the most views in a single day in the UK in 2020 with day one of his PE workouts for kids. But how many did it get? Was it 6.2 million or 7.2 million? I'm going to go... 
Oh, Steve, it's seven point two. Ah, well, I couldn't have lost to a better man. <laughs> Nathan, congratulations to you. Not bad for a novice. You are the inaugural winner of the weakest sink. <laughs> that works much better than I was anticipating. So, thank you very much. Nathan, Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's really interesting that so many retailers are exploring new ways of, of getting not just their name, but also their skills and their expertise and their personalities in front of potential customers. So, look, thank you. We'll catch up soon to see how it goes. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's it for Episode 1 of the shiny new Season 3 of the KBB Review Podcast. Huge thanks to Lindsay Blair, Ian Swatton, Nathan Damrell and Steve Root. And don't forget, the best way to listen is via a dedicated podcast app such as Apple Podcasts. That way you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Don't let the word subscribe put you off. It's totally free. All you're doing is clicking a button and there are simply no excuses. So simply search KBB Review, or one word, and you'll find us. See you next time.